Jacobin Radio, I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we look at the serious threats facing American governance after the assault on the Capitol building and subsequent second impeachment of Donald Trump for engaging in incitement, never mind trying to overturn an election. The nation's John Nichols joins us, and he argues that despite a handful of defections, the Republican Party is still Trump's party. But John insists that it is not just Trump, but also his congressional backers who have to be held accountable. And we'll get his views. We then talk to Eric Alterman, who just wrote his last column for The Nation after 25 years, in which he focused on the main ideas he's been trying to get across in his column. And that is that while it's easy to get lost in the frenzy and miss what is really essential which is the underlying structures of power that are generally not seen and which ensure that the system is the opposite of democratic. Eric calls these the structural failings that underlie our politics and says we have to look beyond the media frenzy and focus on the fundamentals. And that's the title of his last column. And we're going to get him to explain when we come back in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have John Nichols back with us. He is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation and the author of the new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, which is the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. That's published by Verso. He's written a ton of other books, and I think we've talked about almost every one of them right here on this show, uh, some along with Robert McChesney. And he has a forthcoming book called guilty men that we will touch on a little bit later. But I wanted to just say, John, it's always a pleasure to have you and to talk to you. And of course, we've been just through the most incredible week or 10 days, and it kind of reaffirms that old saying, may you live in interesting times. (laughs) Here we are. By the way, I'm told that, that that in some countries is a blessing and in some a curse. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's what I wanted to get, to get across. So here we are in a constitutional crisis. American democracy itself is perhaps facing its most serious threat. The president has led an attempt to subvert the election, proclaiming that the votes were fraudulent, and he's incited and egged on a ragtag band of his ardent supporters who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th in what we're calling, I guess, a riot insurrection that ended up claiming five lives. And then Trump was impeached, very importantly, for the second time this week with a handful of Republicans defecting. I wanted to have you on today because I looked immediately to the nation and to your latest article. You've probably written 10 more since yesterday, but this one is called Trump's Congressional Co-Conspirators Are Just as Guilty as the President. And you argue that despite the handful of defections that we're going to discuss, congressional Republicans continue to embrace Donald Trump's lies and for the most part refuse to sanction him. And that this has been the main argument over these last 10 days with mainstream newspapers, analysts, pundits seeing the Republican Party at a turning point, an inescapable reckoning, according to the New York Times, that could lead to a reconfiguration, splits, disarray, and even disintegration of the Republican Party. So within the frame of the impeachment vote, which you elaborate in your article, and we're going to go over, you seem to be arguing against the emerging consensus point of view, and that Trump, as Mark Cooper put it in Coop Scoop, that Trump may be radioactive, but he's still king of the Republican Party. And Robert Brenner argued the same thing here on this show a week ago, that the Republican Party is Trump's party. And you cite Maxine Waters saying the same thing. So let's go over it. And maybe we should just begin with the events and impeachment, as you do in your article. Let's just say what they were able to do on the impeachment and then move to like what's going to happen next, because you go over Section 3 and 5 of the 14th Amendment. So will you elaborate that for us? I'll do my best. Look, I think it's most important to understand what happened. And what happened on January 6th, was something that I think most people on the left still struggle to put the right words on, 
right? And it, it's been fascinating as it's occurred. Was it a coup? Was it sedition? Was it treason? Was it an insurrection? Was it a riot? I would say that it was parts of all those things. And that by and large, we've been rather cautious in our response rather than as militant as we should be. We should recognize that the president of the United States of America rallied his supporters to storm the Capitol while the legislative branch of the country was in session to certify the results of his successor, that successor having beaten him in an election by a very substantial number of votes. Both in popular vote and electoral college. Absolutely. And they did, in fact, storm the Capitol, successfully got into it, not just a handful, but to the point where they packed the hallways and got within seconds from potentially harming members of the Congress, members of the House and the Senate, as well as potentially the vice president, who the president was criticizing. You had five people die. You have had many arrests related to it. Still an ongoing kind of chaos. The capital city of the country now is an armed camp with military forces sleeping on the floors of the capital. Fences going up, a chaos surrounding the potential events of the next few days leading up to one certain event, which will be the inauguration of the president's successor. If I told you that about any other country in the world, you would be saying that country is in chaos, that it is falling apart, that it is in a disastrous circumstance, one that would have our State Department, uh, you know, on highest level of watch, have our military concerned about whether they needed to intervene, all these sorts of things. But because it's in the United States, we've had this kind of, you know, (laughs) gracious conversation. And there have certainly been people who've spoken out in very blunt and very bold ways. But yet, oh, yeah, we're all going on as normal. And I'm kind of horrified by that. I, 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 I would like to just sort of underscore that, you know, what you just said, John, because you're absolutely right. And I, one of the things that all of this has exposed is how fragile most of our so-called barriers actually are. But w- I think just to underscore what you just said, could anyone ever have imagined that someday it would be the president of the United States who incited insurrection when, let's say, that 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, but also that Trump at least 20 times at the rally told the people that they need to fight to incite them on. And Rudy Giuliani, alongside of him, said there needs to be trial by combat. And then Trump did everything that he could to subvert you know, the results of the election. So this is definitely inciting insurrection. Now, let's go back to what you were going to yeah. say about it. Totally agreed. And so we've had all these things happen, right? First and foremost, I'm shocked that they waited for impeachment for a week. You know, that's a call for immediate impeachment. I wrote a book about impeachment. In fact, I've written a lot about impeachment for many, many years. I think I know a good deal about it. I think I read all of the debates and dialogues about it from 1787. I've looked at every impeachment case throughout the history of the United States. I can tell you a couple of things. Number one, you can impeach in an hour. You don't have to, you know, go through all the rigmarole and stuff like that. If you've got a clear and present danger, you can impeach, period. That's, there's nothing stopping that. The founders, I think, understood that quite well. And you can have a trial the next day, right, or even that day. I mean, you know, it's just this sense of urgency. The notion that there can't be a sense of urgency about it is absurd. Of course there can be. And, again, in any other country in the world, if you saw these things happening, you would be saying, why are they waiting? Why are they delaying what should be the inevitable, the removal of a president who incited insurrection? And then we see the answer to that. Not only did they wait a week, but also on the night of the fascist riot, and that's the term used by Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, who's a former prosecutor, one of the top thinkers, I would argue, on constitutional law at this point among elected officials. He referred to it as a fascist riot. Why wasn't this fascist riot immediately answered with a proper political structural response? Well, because many of the president's supporters were too busy still trying to sustain the objections to the certification of the election results on the night of the riot, right? They came back in and they they said, well, yeah, we'd still like to debate this a little more. And 
We still want to amplify all of the lies, all of the conspiracy theories, and actually vote to support them, you know, before we do anything else. And they did. You know, you have 147 members of the House and the Senate who voted to say that the lies and the conspiracy theories that Donald Trump used to incite the crowd are, in fact, our political agenda. This is, we embrace this. We agree to this. And so that was an absurdity to the situation literally on the night and in the following days. I think as people started to get a better focus of just how bad it was, how violent it was, how dangerous it was, that you started to move toward a more responsible discussion. You did hear more people using the word coup. You did hear more people using the word sedition. You did hear more people talking about incitement to insurrection. It began to get clarity. Give the Democrats credit for that. They finally, you know, they kind of stepped up and they moved an impeachment article, right? A very simple one, clear. You didn't need a long trial on it. You didn't need a lot of evidence gathering because it's on video. You literally have the president of the United States saying it on video. And you have all of his tweets. You have everything else. And it's still, still 95% of the Republican caucus in the House, 95% of the Republican caucus voted not to impeach Donald Trump. And then if I can just complete the thought here, because it's worse than that, you still did get a majority for impeachment and 10 Republicans came over. Who has been talked about the most in this period? The 10 Republicans that went over, the 5% who came over. So everybody's like, wow, there's a split in the Republican party. Well, when 95% of a political organization is on one side and 5% on the other, there isn't a split. That is a political organization that is actually more united than Republicans at the grassroots. Because remember, Republicans at the grassroots, like seven, eight percent, maybe 10 percent of them almost in some states voted for Joe Biden. So the congressional caucus is more militantly in Donald Trump's pocket than just grassroots Republicans across the country. And worst of all, it gets sent over to the United States Senate. And instead of having a sense of urgency, saying, yes, of course, this is a crisis. We have armed troops sleeping in the Capitol. Yeah, well, we'll wait to call the Senate back, you know, in a week or so, you know, sometime. And, you know, we'll maybe have a trial sometime. I don't know. I mean, to my mind, if I have one truly worst player in the whole thing, it's Mitch McConnell. Of course. It's Mitch McConnell. Because he could have said, he could even be a Trump loyalist. And he is. He has been a Trump loyalist throughout this. He could even say, you know, look, I don't know how I'm going to vote on impeachment, on the conviction, but we got to deal with this issue right away. Let's have the trial. They could have started the trial Thursday and And, they didn't. And they showed, I mean, Mitch McConnell showed he can move fast when he put in Amy Coney Barrett. That was like during the election and in three days that was done. And, And But when it comes to renewing the CARES package that people need to eat, that can wait months and months and months. And the impeachment, he's talking about, well, we'll have, what, a week-long vacation, a two-week vacation first? We don't know. We still don't know. We don't so, I mean, know. I want to go into the splits in the Republican Party that are being discussed. But first, I wanted to say, too, that something like you just mentioned, you know, 95% of them are with Trump. 45% of the voters supported the storming of the Capitol, it looks like. We don't know you know, how reliable these polls are right now. But that's the first thing to think of, that there's a lot of true believers there. And it is Trump's party. And then on the other hand, you have this other discussion going on, which is pertains to what you just said, John Nichols. And that is that, well, when should we impeach? Well, let's see, if we wait 100 days after so that Biden can get his initial legislation through, maybe that's a good idea because it'll be distraction. What does that say to you? What do you think of that argument? It's a very good discussion. And look, I understand that we are in the midst of a COVID pandemic, that the outgoing administration mishandled at a level so severe that the president ought to be getting impeached for that. Vice president as well, the head of the task force on it. And and I'd throw in uh, most of the rest of the administration. These, These are crimes. The way that they handled the pandemic is criminal. The way that they have mishandled the rollout of the vaccinations is criminal. This is just, it's indefensibly bad. And so there's a crisis there. We have mass unemployment that extends from it. That is 
it is serious. We are in a long, dark winter in many places around the country. We've got people struggling to feed themselves, to make sure that they can stay in their homes, all of these other challenges. Then, you know, if you want to throw in a little bit of extra stuff, we do have a climate crisis, which we literally now can measure in months the time we've got to act on some things. And we've got a racial justice crisis that we put off for 400 years. And maybe it's time to actually start to get serious about systemic racism in this country. And we've got incredibly warped budget priorities where we can still find money for a military industrial complex, but not enough money for, you know, poor kids to, in school uh, to get fed, to get, get education. So there's a lot of things that the new president, Joe Biden, ought to be dealing with. And I understand people who will say, you know, look, clear the table, clear everything else. Let's just go in and do it. Again, I would argue this is an unrealistic way of looking at it because it suggests that it's somehow hard to do two things at once. Exactly. Right. And, you know, with all due respect, let's get the $2,000 checks out to people. How hard is that to do? I would say our debate, let's have the vote. Right. We actually have six or seven Republicans who said they were for it back when Trump was pushing it in December. So it would seem to me that we've got, you know, something in the range of 57, 56, 57 members of the Senate that are ready to vote for it. That's a majority. Put that with the House, you get the $2,000 checks. You can do that fast. Biden's got a $1.9 trillion stimulus relief program. It's actually pretty good. Give him credit for it. Let's have a debate and pass it, right? And I actually understand there's people who differ. There's the deficit hawks. Day and a half, fine. But what I do want to emphasize is that if you make the excuse that you cannot have a trial of Donald Trump, convict him and get rid of him because you have to do other stuff, right? You will never have the trial and conviction. You aren't going to get there because there will always be other stuff to do. And so to my mind, as somebody who fully understands the crisis, the crisis of COVID unemployment, delayed response to systemic racism, all of these other issues, climate crisis. I recognize those are urgent issues. I want to deal with them right away. I want a first 100 days, et cetera. But you can still hold people to account in that time. You can have a trial. And frankly, the problem I've got is that we didn't have the trial immediately. It didn't happen right now. That It's not already done. And so could we do it in the first couple days of a Biden presidency? Yes, we could. Absolutely. We can get this done and off the table and be finished with it, right? Be finished with Donald Trump in a fundamental way. The reason that that's not going to happen is because there are plenty of Republicans and frankly, quite a few Democrats who fear accountability. They fear impeachment and they have always feared it. They feared it for Richard Nixon. They let him quit and then pardoned him. They feared it for Ronald Reagan on Iran-Contra. They danced around it and did not act, despite the fact that Henry B. Gonzalez and a few great members of Congress wanted to impeach. They feared it and did not act on it for George W. Bush and Dick Cheney when they led us into an illegal and immoral war in Iraq. They would not act even when there was a great groundswell of people across this country wanting it. They feared it with Trump in the first months and years of his administration when Rashida Tlaib, Maxine Waters, and others were pointing out absolutely legitimate reasons to impeach Al Green and others. They finally kind of like dragged themselves over to it and still didn't move with the sort of focus and intensity that they should have. And of course, you ended up with a Senate trial that that was in many ways a joke because- A complete joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of it. It was unfocused. It was, and, and again, why- was the first impeachment back in 2019 into 2020 so ineffectual? Well, I can give you the answer because you had these revelations about the Ukraine stuff, which I I think pale in comparison to what we've got Mm -hmm. now, but you had something there and you decided, okay, that's good. Then months pass, right? The sense of urgency is dissipated over time. And some people think that's healthy. It gets us, we get back to our equilibrium. No, Our equilibrium is well summed up by the Bruce Coburn song. Bruce Coburn, the great Canadian folk singer, who sang back in the 80s, so focused on the crises in Central America, Latin America, saying the trouble with normal is it always gets worse. 
And with our failure to impeach Reagan, our failure to impeach Nixon, see him through, failure to impeach Reagan, failure to impeach Bush, failure to impeach Trump the first time. Now this is where we're at. And if we don't see this thing through, I promise you, we'll be dealing with something worse in the future. Because the trouble with normal is it always gets worse. That's a perfect place to go into then literally what you were saying in the rest of the article and what I'm very concerned about. And that is the consensus is that the party's fracturing. And both you and I am supporting you in this and saying nonsense. This party is a Trump party and it's behind Trump. But what about the splits? around the so-called, what do you call the marquee top Republicans? So the argument that the top of the party, Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham, and the top leadership are signaling that they're going to have to break with the crazed base because now that's associated with sedition. Great. Do it. Go for it. (laughs) Come on over. Come on in. The water's fine. Calling these people out for sedition is legitimate, appropriate, There actually are a lot of Republicans, you know, kind of the never Trump Republicans who are using the word sometimes more comfortably than Democrats. And so, yeah, look, the fact is I am sick and tired of trying to find a soul in Mitch McConnell. You can't. Right. I mean, come on. They literally invaded the Capitol. There were people breaking the windows to try and get into Senate chambers. He's the head of the Senate, at least for a few more days. Um, Does he have no self-respect? Does he have no sense of duty to the chamber he's supposed to head? Does he have no sense of, obviously, no interest in his oath of office? None of this. And what we get from him is, yeah, you know, I may say to my fellow Republicans that the vote on conviction will be a conscience vote. As if these people have displayed a conscience. I mean, you know, with all due respect, Mitch McConnell should be leading at this point. He is the Senate majority leader. And if (laughs) he's in that position, the way that you lead is to schedule a trial and make it happen, move it forward. And frankly, that's the pressure on Chuck Schumer as he will come to power with the seating of Raphael Warnock from Georgia, as well as John Ossoff. Schumer will sometime in the next week or so, probably around Friday, I think, depending on when they certify all the Georgia results, he will be the majority leader of the Senate, thanks to a vote from Kamala Harris that splits a 50-50 split. He then faces the same pressure, and that is to lead. And if you make excuses, if you find ways to delay this again, you are ultimately taking impeachment off the table. I've interviewed Schumer. I think he wants – I actually – I'm holding out a little hope for the guy. I'm trying to be as generous as I can here. But I can tell you that the disease of fearing accountability infects both major parties. There are plenty of Democrats that fear it as well. But at this point, that caution will, Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, lead to a reconstituting and strengthening of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Well, what do you think about, you know, given all of that, and I want to go back to the case of Mitch, but what do you think about where the donors to the Republican Party are, those very rich, the moneyed sources? Do you think that they will break because they can't go along with a party that's associated with sedition? Do you think that's going to happen? Oh, I think some of them are putting out press releases and they're announcing that they're going to break and they're not going to give any more money to the members of the sedition caucus as it's now referred to, which is this 147 members of the House and Senate. But here's a little subtlety. I've covered politics for a pretty long time mm-hmm. in a lot of settings. And I don't want to suggest that I've gotten cynical about it, but I have never, ever seen the corporate Wall Street business community of the United States hold strong on doing the right thing. They may for publicity purposes, say, yeah, we're not going to give any more money to these people. But when it comes time to decide on their agenda, and remember what their agenda is, tax cuts for them, tax cuts for the companies and the CEOs, trade policies that let them screw over American workers, communities and the environment, and deregulation. That's what they want. And if you are going to find a morality or a soul in multinational corporations, good luck. It's really the search for the Holy Grail or beyond that, because I think the Holy Grail is probably real. 
And so the, the fact of the matter is they'll be tough for a little bit. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. That's mm. the most dangerous thing at all, because Democrats might get addicted to their money. Right. Well, and so that's the game. You know, it's not like they're saying, yeah, we're not going to give the money to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans anymore. We're going to give it to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders because we really want to build out democratic socialism in this country so that we can actually have a cooperative commonwealth. That's right. not what they're saying. No. What they're saying is we're not going to give money to the Republicans. Maybe we'll give it to the Democrats if the Democrats play nice with us. But they already are. We already know that the, you know, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is beholden to their donors and the donor that's class. Right. And that's the very nature of the split. You know? And now there's the more Democrats. of them. Right. And right. some of the worst like people that were that had not gotten tired of giving money to Mitch McConnell until like last week. If they're now available, what happens with Democrats? I will guarantee you that there are Democrats who are sitting around going, hmm, how can we get those folks to be our more of our loyal donors? So bottom line is this, bottom line is this, I don't trust corporate and Wall Street donors to really cut these folks off, cut the Trump wing of the party off. And two, even if they did, I don't like what they might make the Democratic Party at this point. And so to me, they're off the table. They're not a part of this. What's a part of this is the fundamental question of, can you get a trial and a vote soon enough that in the glare of public opinion, watched by the American people, Republican senators, some of whom will be up for re-election in 2022, have to decide whether they would vote to let Donald Trump off the hook for everything he's done, everything he's done, or you know try and make a split with them. I think it's unlikely they'll make the split. I really do. But at least you have that trial for that reason. That's the whole point of impeachment. Right. The whole point of impeachment isn't punishing. It's not about punishment. Impeachment is always about defining where we are at as regards our constitutional system. Does a system of checks and balances actually work or doesn't it? Let me ask you this, John, about your calculation on this, because I agree with you. I don't see that they're going, I don't think that they, even if they have a trial right now, that you're going to see any courageous breakaways. But the question I guess really is given that so much of the party is right with Trump and supported this storming of the Capitol very much into the insurrectionist mode. And do you think that this means that this will turn off other Republican voters? Or would you say like Maxine Waters and others that this is already a thoroughly Trumpist affair? Look, Don Trump knows nothing about politics and he knows nothing about history. I mean, he's, he's an incredible ignoramus in this regard, like a scorching. However, he does know how to assess a situation and get what's best for him out of it. Mm-hmm. That's He's trained to that. I think his father beat that into him, you know, from day one. And it's, it's the Trump ethic, right? And so he looked at the Republican Party, not recently, in 2015, he assessed it or even in 2012, leading into this thing, he assessed it. He said, well, how do I get a stake in the Republican Party? How do I get ground in the Republican Party? Oh, I know. I'll appeal to racism and xenophobia, right? (laughs) And he did. The whole thing of Barack Obama wasn't born in the U.S., the the lie there. Then he did just vicious anti-immigrant policies and, and statements and stuff like that. And what did it do? Got him traction. He did pretty, pretty well as a candidate. And then, interestingly enough, running as a candidate of racism and xenophobia, kind of clearing the ground, he also said something else that's really interesting. He said to the base of the Republican Party, see these other guys, the other 17 people that are running for president, the best and the brightest of the party, U.S. senators, governors, cabinet members, all these people who are on this stage with me, they all are lying to you. They're all screwing you over. They all are representing corporate interests and, you know, free trade and stuff like that. I, Donald Trump, I'm on your side, right? Now he wasn't. He's a liar. He's a ridiculous liar. But the Republican Party base was so vulnerable, right? So open to that appeal that it worked. This guy literally 
he announces in June of 2015 and sweeps away the entire leadership of the Republican Party in the nominating process. And then comes into the 2016 campaign and basically gets the whole bunch united behind him as we're learning through the Access Hollywood tapes that he's you know, an even more horrible person than we thought, right? And they're still like, okay, that's cool. We're with this guy. And then he comes to power and they grumble. Oh, I really don't like that he says things like that. But the truth of the matter is it was summed up perfectly by Paul Ryan, who's one of the most loathsome figures in the whole bunch. You know, he kind of make he's like a Mitch McConnell with like darker hair. Paul Ryan, at one point, Trump did something. I think it was incredibly xenophobic, but I got to be clear on this because it could have been incredibly racist or it could have been both, but it was something he did. And Paul Ryan said, and this is a paraphrase, but genuinely sincere to what, what Ryan said. He says, well, yeah, you know, I know what the president's trying to do, but we don't say it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? We and it was say it out loud. Yeah. yeah, their objection to him was simply that he put it into actual terms, what they'd been doing for years. And so if you ask me, can this Republican Party write itself? Can it become a virtuous, moral, maybe more conservative than I would like, but you know, a party that believes in the basic premises of the American experiment, that respects a clash of ideas, tries to win not through gerrymandering, rigging of the system, big money, rigging of the rules as regards the legislative process and racist, xenophobic appeals, the whole thing. Can they move beyond that and really just compete in a battle of ideas? No, they know they can't do that. And they know they won't do that because competing in a battle of ideas, right, would get them as a party of massive tax breaks for corporations and the rich, deregulation to the point where we're actually our environment and our health is endangered, privatizing schools, privatizing everything. You know, that would get them about 10% of the vote. I'm not kidding. They would lose, right? They would lose. And so as a result, their quote unquote appeal is non-existent. This is not, I'm talking about the base of the party. I'm talking about the leadership, the, or, you know, the core people that are, they're major members of Congress and all this stuff like that. And so, no, they're not going to split. They're not. So that's really, you know, I just interrupt you because I want to take this last question there. So for the foreseeable future, and I, of course, I can't ask people to to really look into the crystal ball, but do you think that given that, and you're very strong on the consequences, people have to be held accountable, but the what do you see as the consequences of Trump's actions? You know, for the Republicans, it, is it tied to MAGA politics from here on in, in your view? They may evolve it. And you know, look, the Republican Party, and you know, I wrote a book recently about the Democratic Party. And yeah. one of my great goals is to actually write a book about the Republican Party. My middle name is Harrison. My great-grandfather named my grandfather after the Republican ticket in 1888. And they liked the vice presidential candidate more. So my grandfather's name was Morton Harrison Nichols. My dad was Harrison Nichols. I'm John Harrison Nichols. Our family was so Republican that we literally have a name that has nothing to do with us. It yeah. is literally a Republican name. And so I'm fascinated by this party, and I've been fascinated by it all my life. And here's what I've learned about the contemporary Republican Party. In the post-World War II era, they have always looked for a hero to come and let them sell their unpopular agenda. As they stopped competing, and they did. They In the 50s, they stopped competing for the great mass of Americans. Dwight Eisenhower actually tried to win the votes of the African-American community so successfully that he was supported by Adam Clayton Powell in his reelection campaign. He criticized the military industrial complex. He supported organized labor. You know, I mean, he wasn't perfect. Eisenhower was a very flawed guy in a lot of ways, but, but they tried to compete, right? He was our last liberal president. (laughs) Yes. He was, that's what Howard Zinn used to say. But, uh, but this is the interesting thing in the contemporary era, they looked, they've been looking for a, a theatrical figure to see them out of it, right? A Ronald Reagan or even a George W. Bush. And remember, George W. Bush was a very theatrical figure. He came up with this notion. He's a cowboy. They claimed he spoke Spanish really well and he was compassionate conservative. <laughs> they had all this kind of fantasy about him. And then they found themselves a Donald Trump. This party at this point always looks for somebody who can sort of sell their toxic brew 
in a new way, right? So is it always going to be a Trumpist party? Not necessarily. You may have somebody who's far more good-looking, younger, could be a woman, but there'll be somebody that they seek to have sell this stuff. Because remember, Trump didn't develop the racist appeals. The Southern strategy goes back to Nixon. It goes back even to Goldwater, who voted against the civil rights. So the truth of the matter is, they've been playing this game for a very, very long time. They're just always looking for somebody new to put at the front of it, right? And so at some point, they may split with Trump, right? Or Trump may just fade away. That I can understand. But what you need to understand is that what comes after Trump could well be worse than Trump. And because you'd have, have somebody more competent with the same views. Yeah. We had a really interesting opening here. We had a really interesting opening because the people who were competing to be the after Trump, Josh Hawley and mm-hmm. Ted Cruz, showed themselves, right? They were revealed. And the question is now is the only way that you can change this party. The question is now do you call not just Trump, but his enablers to account? Do you get serious about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution? A Republican amendment to the Constitution, by the way, done in the aftermath of the Civil War with the purpose of locking in some of the accomplishments of the Civil War in hopes that you could actually have a Reconstruction. That amendment said if you're inciting to insurrection or giving aid and comfort to it, you're not supposed to be in public office. We allow a great range of opinions. We have a great competition of ideas. But if you're literally inciting insurrection, supporting it, giving aid and comfort to it, you can't be there. You're out of it. You can't continue in the game. You're like somebody that went to Vegas and cheated, right? You can't come back to the tables. And this is a moment where if you force the issues, if you have this kind of urgent struggle over it, where you literally talk about a trial and conviction, bring it right now. Let them vote. Everybody's aware of what the issues are. You don't have to muddy it. In the House, they didn't do it, right? You only got 10 to come across. Maybe you bring it in the Senate, you bring it to a head. Maybe we get someplace I'm dubious, but let's at least try. And frankly, let's also listen to Sherrod Brown and Sheldon Whitehouse and others when they talk about expelling Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz from the United States Senate because of what they did. I'm really glad you brought that up. And it's a, I think it's the way we should end it. But maybe just to think for a second about how likely that is, given that there is a lot of anger. But, you know, as and as you harness the anger, harness it, use it. So do you think it'll happen? You think they'll be forced to resign? No. Holly and Cruz? No, I do not. I hope I'm wrong. I would love to be wrong. You know, as you know, Susie, we've known each other for a long time. I'm delighted to be wrong. I I don't want to be a cynic. I want to be an optimist. And so because I think cynicism is easy. Optimism is hard. Optimism requires you to actually believe in things and hope and try. And so I want to be an optimist. And so I want to put it to a head. I love that Cory Bush, the new congressman from Missouri, is raising this issue in the House, talking about investigation and potential expulsion. I love that Sherrod Brown and Sheldon Whitehouse and others are talking about investigation and expulsion in the Senate. I think this is great. And what I do know is this. The time to be bringing this to a head is right now. Don't let it dissipate over months or years. Don't create a commission. Don't wait forever to, you know, get all the evidence. We have plenty of evidence now. We'll get more. And I want all of it. I want it all. But don't wait. Act now. There are troops sleeping in the Capitol. There are, it, Washington is an armed camp. This is a very good time in a shaken country that has been jarred by what has occurred to put it to a head and say, okay, our Republican friends, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing. Let's lock that in. Let's get that record clearly, because then we're going to know who you are. But if you give them time to lie, to cheat, to steal, to peddle the fantasy that it wasn't really as bad as you thought, we will be in a Bruce Coburn moment. And I've made him the center of my conversation today. And we will be in a trouble with normal as it always gets worse moment. John Nichols, I am so happy that we took all the time so that you could get to that last point. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. And for your article, and tell the listeners, it's in the nation. It's called Trump's Congressional Co-Conspirators, 
are just as guilty as the president. And you really should read it because he names names, goes through the arguments in a pain, in a, I should say, painstaking and detailed way. We don't use that word very often anymore. So thanks for your work, John. And when you get this new book called Guilty Men Out, we're certainly going to talk about it. And on another day, we'll talk about now the other side of the coin, the Democrats and all of their problems, which you've just been writing about. John is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and his latest book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. That's published by Verso, and it could, and it's probably very apropos for the moment that we're living in. John, thanks so much. Honored to be with you, my friend. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Eric Alterman with us. He is a distinguished professor of English at Brooklyn College. That's at CUNY. And he is also and has been for 25 years the liberal media columnist for The Nation magazine. He's also author of What Liberal Media, The Truth About Bias in the News, which was a national New York Times bestseller, as well as 10 other books. And his newest book, Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse, was published just last August. I'm very pleased that he's with us today, and I won't go over all the prizes that he has won, but he's been a political columnist for the nation for the last 25 years. And I think I've been reading I've definitely been reading almost 25 years. And he announced in his December 30th, 2020 column that he's retiring and that that column was his last. So we've asked him here to discuss the ideas he put forth in that parting column. He noted in the column the titanic changes that have taken place in the nature of the media in covering American politics over this era of the last 25 years, and that includes things like MSNBC and CNN and Fox News, Rupert Murdoch's empire, social media, that are all truly epic-making transformations. But Eric's point in the column is that you can easily get lost in the media frenzy and miss what is really essential. And he says that the media focuses, understandably, on what seem to be the determinants of political outcomes, and that's the standard processes that make up the democratic system, especially voting in elections, the branches of government, legislation, policymaking, operation of the courts, and that's the news. But Eric Alterman argues that the actual outcomes in our system are, despite appearances, not determined through these processes, but through the operation of underlying structures of power that are generally not seen and which ensure that the system is the opposite of democratic. And Eric also says that he calls these structural failings that underlie our politics, and his aim in the last column is to specify what he has come to see as the main failings and to point to some of the research studies that have clarified them for us. So I've invited Eric to talk about the ideas in this article. So with all of that, Eric Alterman, welcome to Jacobin Radio. I don't, I I think we're done. (laughs) Well, I think that the title. Seriously, I think I I don't got nothing to add. Good job. It's nice to be so well read. I'm going to have a drink. Good for you. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, given all of the uh, activities of the last week, I think I should join you. But in any case, the title, I think, of your article says it all, and that's Look Beyond the Media Frenzy and Focus on the Fundamentals. And literally, you know, in your parting, your goodbye column, you talk about why this has been important to you for 25 years and more. So what led you to do your last column this way? Well, I knew I was doing my last column. And I wanted to write something that might have more lasting value than my usual column. And I also, I, I was trying to explain what I've been trying to do. You know, I, um, I've lived my life, my professional life, maybe my personal life too, as neither fish nor fowl. I've had simultaneous careers in journalism and in academia, and for a long time in think tanks. And they're all a little bit different. They all treat the word truth differently. I always give my students the very first day a lecture on epistemology because I want to teach them how to be critical thinkers. And I'm always trying to say, how do we know what we know? And I I walk them through a kind of spectrum of what is credible in terms of what they're going to be reading 
and hearing and seeing in the media. There's definitely a contradiction between immediacy and verifiable truth. The more immediate something is, the less likely it is to be true. So tweets are often false and websites, if you don't know where they're coming from, are often false. And then you go through newspapers, which are as true as they get that day, weekly magazines, eventually you get to two categories of the most true things we have, I think, are peer-reviewed academic journals and the New Yorker magazine, which fact checkers once caught me because I misquoted now I forget the guy's name, the guy with the big glasses on The Simpsons. Uh. <laughs> anyway, I quoted him saying, ha ha. And they found the transcript and said, no, he said, heh heh. Oh my God. <laughs> so to get back to my column, I wanted to do what I do for my students, which is to say, think about what's true beneath the surface of what you're reading. And I guess I think even though there's this conflict between the definitions of truth in the media and in academia, I try to, as best as I can, bridge those two things. That's what I've been doing for 25 years. I read the academic studies. I don't actually talk to people. I haven't made a phone call in a long time. But I do a lot of reading, and I apply what I learn as a scholar to the daily news. So I only have about a 1,000 words in my column, so... I looked through my notes and I said, what were the most important studies that I've relied on in my head as I've tried to understand what's really important in the media? And I came up with, I think, maybe five of them. If I had been writing a longer column, I mean, all of them, I think the most distant ones, I think, is 2014. I have stacks and stacks of these things. I could have gone back a long time, but these four struck me as most relevant, these four or five. So I'll be happy to go through them if you... Yeah, well, what I would like to do is do that. I just wanted to say at the outset, you know, that I'm in academia, too. And I, for a long time, tried to see if I could come up with ways that students could sift through media to see what's being said and from what point of view. And then, of course, we had this sort of explosion of of what you're talking about as well, the fake news and Twitter and social media muddying it. And so it's, it's a really important question. But to go to what you've just done, which is to actually highlight what I also think are the important important studies and your conclusion. So I would like to go through them. And the first concern of yours is that voters rarely matter very much. And you cite Gillens and Page. So let's see what are their specific findings and what makes that study compelling? Well, looking at this column now, there's three voters rarely matter much studies that I refer to. The first one is, as you mentioned, Gillens and Page, who look at how normal people almost never get the legislation that they want because legislators are answerable to corporations and wealthy elites. And they go back, I think, 50 years looking at how legislation is passed and who it was responsible to. And then I cite another study from 2018, which is, I think, very interesting. That didn't get nearly as much. Gills and Page got some attention. This one got no attention which is that congressional staffers have this idea that people are much more conservative than they really are. And the media share this idea because their sources are the same people as the congressional staffers. And that's because they hear from the people who Gillens and Page are talking about. They don't hear from normal people. And wealthy elites and corporations are more conservative than normal people are. So even if you elect someone who speaks with populist rhetoric from the left, they're going to feel like in order to be responsible to the serious people that they've got to be more conservative because that's the people who are in the game once you get into power. Then the third voters really matter much example is a study. I can't pronounce this guy's name. His first name is Stan. (laughs) Let's call him Stan O. (laughs) Stan O did a study that showed that the fact that ever since Citizens United invited really wealthy people to have much bigger voice in the process because their donations are unlimited to parties, that this drove extremes. It drove the parties to extremes. Now, the Democratic Party is not driven to extremes in the same way the Republican Party is because the Democratic Party is a coalition of a lot of different kinds of people. 
where I live and where you live, we're liberals. You guys are commies, actually. <laughs> That's a joke. The left coast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of moderates and even a few conservatives in the Democratic coalition. Whereas the Republican Party is all conservatives. And lately, they've become something well to the right of conservatives. They're actually a significant number of neo-fascists in the party. And that's due in part to the fact of the power of people like the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson, the late unlamented Sheldon Adelson. And these people are able to buy the legislation that they want. If you look at the transformation of the Republican Party on Israel, a lot of it is due to the Christian right. And a lot of it is due to Sheldon Adelson personally, uh, who gave the Republican Party $250 million in just the last election. And you can see politicians transforming their views in real time as they go meet with them. So this decision in Citizens United that opened up the floodgates on money is in part responsible for the Republican Party becoming the extremist party that it's become. And, and here, of course, I think what you're talking about and you do in your article, that it's in particular the dark money that comes out of this. And that's I think that's what you're right, talking well, about. Go my ahead. friend Jane Mayer has done great work. She's not alone, but she's best known for it. And she's maybe done the best. And the thing about dark money is that, first of all, these organizations, Adelson does it, Koch Brothers did it. They create organizations that have really pleasant sounding names that in no way identify what they're actually doing. And they don't have to identify their donors. So the whole thing is very under the radar. And it's almost impossible to identify. But they book in the media as experts they're treated the same way people who have genuine qualifications and PhDs and the like, and completely perverts the process. And of course, with Fox News and its followers, they treat this as the entire world, and it's the only information that those people get. So there's no reaching these people. That's why, I mean, people are saying, oh, wow, Donald Trump's approval rating's down to 34%. Well, 34% is awfully high for that guy. You know, Nixon was down to 24%, and he wasn't nearly as horrible as Trump is. So this is an important reason for that, I would say. Well, then, you know, and that brings me to ask you about how you think, and obviously, I think you've just sort of begun to say it, but how that dark money and Citizens United, in a way, affects our understanding of the recent takeover of the Capitol, or the attempted takeover of the Capitol. Because what they talk about, fake news, lamestream news, lying news, and this attitude that there's this alternate second reality. And that's very widespread. And of course, conspiracy thinking too. And you've been writing books about this. But more than that, fake news succeeds in actually affecting what people think. And that's, you know, I think what's behind Fox News. So you you cite a study from Sanford Schramm and Richard Ford. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, yes, I do cite that study that describes the power of, they tracked Fox News's ability to change elections, depending on how it showed up and what its ratings were, because Fox News came into being in 1996 and you couldn't get it everywhere. And as it showed up in different places, those places became more conservative, became worth in some places as many as eight points in an election. I would say that Fox and its brothers and sisters have two important effects, one of which gets talked about a lot which is it creates this bubble that people live in and can't be reached. And they believe that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor and that mm-hmm. Barack Obama was a Kenyan Muslim, et cetera. And these are majority. That last one was a majority opinion in the Republican Party. And 40% of Trump voters believed in the pedophile pizza parlor. And, you know, now we have QAnon playing a similar role. But the other thing they do is they exert a gravitational pull on the entire rest of the mainstream in part because Fox News is so profitable and Murdoch is pulling in a billion dollars a year. I mean, hes I get the feeling that Murdoch and his son are kind of ashamed of Fox News, but they can't walk away from it because it's such an important profit for them. They would like it to be a little less crazy, but it's the crazies that keep it printing money. So CNN sees that. And, and what does Jeff Zucker do? He hires Kelly McAnany. He hires Corey Lewandowski. He doesn't think they're telling the truth. In fact, Corey Lewandowski was on CNN. He had a contract with the Trump administration that prevented him. It was a non-disparagement and a non-disclosure agreement. So he was not allowed to tell the truth. So CNN hired somebody who was 
legally enjoined from telling the truth. And yet that was good enough for them because they wanted to chase after Trump's viewers. And um, in, in a recent column that I wrote for, for BillMoyers.com, right after the uh, riot, I quoted Les Mooms, who was the uh, head of CBS. And in 2016, he said, well, Trump may not be good for the country, but he sure is good for CBS. Right. Uh, and you can double and triple that for Fox News and CNN. So that's, that's the business they're in. You know, there's a, there's a lot of imbalances between the left and right in the United States. An important one, though, also doesn't get talked about too much, is that people on the right only want to hear things that they agree with. That's why talk radio is monochromatic. But people on the left want to hear both sides. They love NPR because NPR gives them a, the conservative view and the liberal view and doesn't take a position. And so that's how the mainstream media is set up. On the one hand, there's the far right. And on the other hand, there's the center. But the center keeps moving over closer and closer to the far right because the far right gets crazier and crazier. And if you think of a 50-yard line on a football field, the 50-yard line is now on the 20-yard line of 10 years ago. I mean, that's exactly right. The farther to the right that the Republicans go, then the farther the bar of the Democrats also goes. Well, I have a lot of questions out of this, but I think to take it back to what you just said, that 40 percent of the people believed that Hillary Clinton ran this Pizzagate child trafficking and QAnon is far worse. And it has, what, three and a half million people. There's a lot of talk these days about how that was amplified and built through Facebook and Facebook groups. And Trump has now been banned from Twitter that he has used to incite. But I just wondered what your thoughts about that are. I guess you've just talked about Fox's role in this, but maybe you could just say a little bit if you've thought about it on social media's role in amplifying this alternate reality. Well, my friend Hannah Arendt, Yes, that's what I wanted you to do. Yeah. In 1974, she was talking about Watergate again, which seems like a kind of paradigm of media compared to what we have today. But she said in an interview near the end of her life, she said, if everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather nobody believes anything any longer. And the people that no longer believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but of its capacity to think and judge. And I think that's where we are with social media. With social media, you don't know where the information is coming from. And that's actually your job to try and figure it out. My students, they don't know if they're getting something from the New York Times or from out of Alex Jones's, you know, rectum. So everything is as believable as anything else and nothing is per se true. So two things happen. One is what Hannah Arendt just described. And the other thing is we have like a 99% and a 1% problem. 1% of us can get good information, knows where to find it, can pay for it, subscribes to the New York Times despite whatever it costs. And everybody else is living in this world where they're at the mercy of all these various social media forces that take no responsibility at all for truth. Um, and if they did, they wouldn't make nearly as much money as they do. So uh, I think we may see some changes on that under the Biden administration. I think there's a consensus to hold the social media companies more responsible as a result of the riot, I had to say what what was the good that could come out of the riot. I think that might be one thing because we see how badly that can go. I mean, it's not just not just something could happen anymore; it did happen, and it's a very clear line between the incitement on social media and people murdering a cop in that horrific scene. Right, with a fire extinguisher. So. I guess I should ask you what you're doing next. I assume you're continuing in academia and writing, but are you still going to be concentrating on the liberal media or let's just say the media sphere as your source of penetrating thought and critique? I don't know. I've got a couple of book contracts that I owe books for and working on steadily. You know, I, I don't do as good a job on the books when I have other obligations and I, you know, I have this teaching job and, uh, I get phone calls and I answer the phone. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll email you when I have something to announce. But I'm taking a class in Ulysses now. Oh, so I've been reading Ulysses today. So I'm doing that. Really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking I should go back and do that. Well, I want to wish you well and say that you will be missed in the nation, but we'll look for you elsewhere. The nation has asked me as a contributing editor to write longer pieces. So. I suppose I'll do that once I get one of my books underway. 
Well, thanks for joining us today. You know, in this short 20 minutes, I think you've pointed to some really penetrating arguments. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to someone who knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Alterman, thanks so much for joining us today. He's Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College, City of New York University, and his latest book is lying in state, why presidents lie and why Trump is worse. I think you should go out and get it. And thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Susie Wiseman.